are now entering female founder world with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Sana, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on Female Founder World. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here in such illustrious company. Why did you want to start this company? And like, what is the mission behind what you're building? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really... I've known I wanted to work in the food industry since I was 16 years old. Um, I've just been, I was always just trying to find what my place in the industry was. And um, that I wanted that place to be a place of equity where everybody felt welcome. I wanted to be deeply rooted in culture, specifically my culture, telling stories around South Asia that, you know, I didn't feel were being told in their full complexity and depth. Um, And then I wanted it to be really delicious. Like those are my three criteria. And I think, that for the past five years, the like vessel for, for those values has been spices and sourcing really, really beautiful spices for a global pantry. Um, but the vessel could have been anything. And then, you know, in my next chapter, who knows what it'll be. But for now, it's, it's using spices as kind of a, a medium for um, equity, culture and flavor. How long ago you said you've been working with for a few years? Was it 2017 that you launched? Yeah, we launched in a small, tiny, scrappy way in the fall of 2017. Um, And I started working on it in late 2016. And then really skyrocketed in 2020. Like those first two and a half years were just like... Talk to me about that. We were speaking before the show. I have a ceramics business. It is very small. It's something that I haven't like, you know, put a ton of into. And I'm in this place of it's kind of been ticking along for a couple of years and I'm not sure how to like boost it to the next level. What were some of the things that either you did or that changed in the world that kind of gave the business the boost in 2020? Yeah. So one, um, I didn't ever raise funding. So we've been completely bootstrapped until last week where we raised our seed round. Oh, um, congratulations. Despite being five years old and, you know, profitable the whole time. So like we did it a bit differently. And that meant that we, um, what I really needed was like a boost of cash to, I always had tons of demand. Like I was always selling out of runs and people on social media were really excited about it. But, you know, when it came to, we started with just one spice, turmeric. And then when it came to adding on another spice, like adding on peppercorns, um, even just buying one initial harvest of peppercorns was debilitating for me. And so when the pandemic happened, two things happened. One, people suddenly wanted to order things by mail um, and they wanted to order, you know, shelf stable pantry items that could help them cook because suddenly they were stuck at home and the attention shifted to spices in this really beautiful way. Um, I went into the pandemic thinking that I was going to have to shut the business down because, you know, ports were going to be closed and and instead the absolute opposite happened. Um, and so one was interest just like exploded because people were at home. But then the other thing is that the SBA offered really great small business loans. And I haven't talked yeah. about this that much, but we qualified for an idle loan, which is an economic impact disaster loan at the early 2020 And we got $97,000, which for a really small business, I I think that was one third of our revenue from the year before. So if we did 350K Mm -hmm. in revenue in 2019, it's public knowledge, happy to share it. Um, And we got then 97K in a loan. um, That's a 30 year loan with a 3% interest rate which is like magic oh, wow. money. I was going to say, yeah. what are the terms on that? That's amazing. Magical money. So that Wowza. that really propelled us because the interest was there. And then I was able to take that 90K and just apply it to buying all the spices from all the farmers that I already knew that I had lined up. Um, so that, that was what changed the game for us, really. 
the SBA. Oh, that's incredible. Wow. All right. This is the first time I've heard that on the show. That is really interesting to hear. And so now you've raised a, your seed round. Just what has that process been like for you? And what are you planning on doing with that cash? Like why not continue just to bootstrap? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really thought we would continue to bootstrap and I was pretty anti fundraising because I'd seen dear friends do it and be burned. Um, and I'd seen mm-hmm. dear friends do it and kind of get trapped in, in a cycle of like needing to keep raising. I, I think my biggest thing was that I wanted to prove proof of concept to our farm partners first before we were trying, you know, indebted to an investor somewhere. And I wanted to do it in a way that worked best for them and made sense to our farm partners before, you know, we were like, oh, well, these are our bottom line requirements. Like, this is what our investor wants. I wanted to build the dream system. I think, though, by 2021, we had grown 15x in two years. And so our production runs were just getting impossible to finance. It was just getting really hard. And summer 2021, we were so, so cash strapped that sort of every week was a prayer and every week was like, you know, on our spreadsheet or on our bills was like, which bill can we push? Which one can we survive? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, you know, such a drain on team morale. My, my team has just worked so hard um, and I didn't want to put them through that ever again, really. And it felt like we've proved the concept, especially when it comes to spices, we've proven that we can work with best in class farmers, regenerative farmers across South Asia. We can give them the tools to scale, to you know handle quality control on both continents really well. And we've proven how to generate you know the marketing excitement and the hype and like build a community of customers who trust us very deeply. Yeah. So it's a good time to now take a little bit of money and a little bit. We didn't take. We took like slow impact capital. We didn't raise private equity. We didn't even go venture. Um, it was like gentle money. Okay. That's how I've been describing. It's like very impact aligned, gentle money. And we raised one and a half. Um, okay. Amazing. Congrats. Do you know that fund? It's like Calm Company or no. are you across them? I'm just really interested. They keep like popping up on my Instagram feed. And that's why I wanted to mention it. And they basically, their whole investment thesis is around investing in profitable companies that are growing slowly rather than, you know, these like hit or miss, like unicorns or vast kind of um, VC money, which I think is really interesting. And their portfolio of companies you look at and you're like, huh, interesting. Like they're doing really well. They're doing really interesting things. And it's just this thing of like, okay, you can still, there are still ways where you can take on investors and not be on that like VC fast track. Yeah, exactly. And I think I was really candid or often in an aggressive way with with early conversations yes. um where I would get on with you know these like sexy funds that were all about the new consumer and you know the, and, and I would sort of say like this business is not going to be a billion dollar company in five years it's just not happening and we're not going to give you a hundred x return in 10 years like we work with agriculture in the soil in a regenerative way so that's going to take generations um and and the people that aligned with that and got that immediately our partners today and the folks that didn't, you know, we sent them cute presents and said, peace. (laughs) I love that. Send them cute presents and say, peace. Okay. So what is driving growth in the brand right now? Are you doing wholesale? Is it e-com? Are you big on TikTok? Like what's working? Is it a mixture of everything? Oh, it is such a mix of everything. And I think most 
peers that I know in the industry right now are really aiming to diversify as much as possible and not be overly yes. reliant on one channel. I think the the death of Instagram has taught us that more than anything right mm -hmm. now. We have historically been a majority D2C company, but a very unique majority D2C company where our peers who are majority D2C are then using most of their spend on ads. We have never spent on ads. And it's only like as of three months ago that we've been spending like a action of our revenue on, you know, Google ads and that kind of thing. So we've been very um, primarily just focused on churning out good content and good storytelling around our products, like really high quality content and via our newsletter, via our blog, via collaborations. And that so far has been good enough to grow the brand significantly because people are like drawn to the fact that it's real. Um, and it's like really telling stories that they wouldn't be able to access otherwise. Um, we're definitely diversifying into wholesale more and realizing that, you know, that old logic that like wholesale will cannibalize a D2C brand or vice versa is not true. They can actually, when done well, work together really beautifully. And when it comes to like social for customer acquisition, TikTok is big. The like reach that you can get in TikTok is, is wild. I put up a photo of me and my grandma drinking our new Haldidud, which is like a turmeric latte blend and I think it's gotten like four million views so far and it was just like an off the oh, wow. cuff yeah it was just like this totally off the cuff video that me and my grandma made you know one afternoon but people connect to it on an emotional level and it, and it hits I'm just looking at your I'm on the website now and I'm looking at your blog and the content is is really beautiful do you guys get a lot of traffic to the blog or is it more like this you create the content here and then that gets kind of adapted Deployed for all of there. the other channels as well. You know, yeah. our blog definitely needs to grow and get better because it, it, there's so, so much on it, but I don't feel that it's actually utilized to its full potential. I think mm. our biggest like driver is our newsletter. Um, we send one newsletter a week and that's it usually written by me or my marketing manager. So like it's, it's very heart and soul. It's very feelsy. Um, we, we put a lot into it. We, my rule is always, I don't want to waste anybody's time with putting bullshit in their inbox. Like if it's going to be in their inbox, it's going to be valuable to them. Um, and that has meant that we have kind of a industry high of an open rate and a great list. Um, and, and, you know, can sell out of most of our spice drops pretty quickly via the newsletter. Um, okay. What is in the newsletter? Like what's working? All kinds of things. I mean, one is, you know, if you're on the newsletter, you get early access to limited edition collaborations. So like, for example, mm -hmm. last week, a problem that I had identified as a South Asian who loves to cook was that um, a lot of recipes ask for fresh curry leaves. Um, and in here in the US, fresh curry leaves are hard to come by. Um, and so about two years ago, I started like scouring Facebook marketplace for curry leaf trees um, and ended up doing like really shady transactions with Indian aunties and like <laughs> faraway places to mail me curry leaf trees. Um, and then, you know, I think I had to pay like $200 sight unseen blind to like reserve this tree. And it's shocking and magical to me that a tree actually arrived at my doorstep um, and has changed my cooking because I now have access to this fresh tree. And in India, they grow outside in the wild, but here, um, I have it as an indoor house plant and it's beautiful and it grows ah. really fast. Um, so last week we launched a collaboration with a South Asian owned um, nursery uh, for little curry leaf plants. Um, and she spent the past nine months growing them, but she, and we asked her to grow like a couple thousand because we were like, 
our newsletter is going to snap up even a couple thousand like in hours. And at the end of the day, the ones that met our quality standards was only about 600. And we sold out of those 600 in three hours because the newsletter was on it. They knew that it's going to launch via the newsletter before it launches on social. Mm -hmm. They were ready with that button. So those kinds of drops where we're fulfilling a need for our customer that like helps fill their cooking life um, have just been really fun. And it allows us to partner with community members that we love, like the South Asian nursery. Amazing. So are you like, is a lot of your content focused around recipes and heritage? Is that kind of like what you're looking at? I think that's that's where the culture piece comes in is that, you know, on one hand, our spices are so diverse in that I cook more, less Indian food and more Korean Italian food. And I'm still using our Mm -hmm. spices in every single meal in some format. So Mm. we definitely want to highlight the diversity of them and how you can use them in everything. Our recipe editor recently came up with a beautiful kimchi recipe that uses like a mix of three different chilies of ours, for like sweetness and smokiness and flavor. Um, So there's that piece. But I think the other piece is that I identified that as a South Asian, there wasn't depth of like culinary knowledge and a culinary archive of our cuisines. And I say cuisines because like Indian cuisine is absolutely not a monolith. There's thousands of cuisines within that. And so there also felt like there's an opportunity to go wide and show like how a chili can be used in eight different cuisines in different ways. But there's also this opportunity to go deep and show how, you know, this chili is grown in this region and that region uses Mm -hmm. this chili in this way um, and actually tell the stories of the people producing them and how they consume them. So it's I guess it's just rooting in like, what do people like us who are avid home cooks, what are we wanting um, and creating content around that, like really constantly being in touch with as a home cook, what are our needs? Interesting. When you're like launching a new product, what is like, think, I know that you've just launched via the newsletter. What are some of the other things that you're doing to get kind of eyeballs on a new product? Are you, do you have a PR team? Are you doing like a lot of partnerships? What other things are kind of like driving that real like traction? I mean, we totally have a PR team and then obviously those like really clicky hits day of launch are nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't lie. They, they help. And especially do they when they drive sales. Do they help? They do. They do. They, they really, yeah. for us, we find that they do also because the editors that we're working with genuinely love the product and are, you know, yeah. also food community folks who know that if we're launching something, it's it's going to be delicious and kind of the highest quality on the market. Mm. Um, because, they, you know, those same editors have asked us in the past of like, oh, why don't you have this product? And we'll very honestly tell them we don't have it because what we have is not the best on the market. And when we have the best on the market, we'll launch it. So there's like a deep trust yeah. um, with at least the, the food media community that we've built up over the years. Um, so those clicky things help us because of our reputation. Beyond that, I mean, lots of hyping on social always. And I think what I found is it's always helpful to hear from me the thinking of what was the problem? Why did we decide to launch something, you know, um, or big beyond, oh, I tasted and it tasted good. Recently, we launched sweatsuits. And I think for a lot of people, they were like, why? Like, is it just like a brand trying to sell us, you know, upsell us on more swag that we don't need? Um, and what I yeah. really wanted, to, and I get that, but that being like a reaction in this time of like real consumer saturation. Um, but I, what I wanted to explain to customers was that um, just the way we work with beautiful vendors who, who grow spices for us, 
we also know incredible cotton farmers and incredible textile mills and incredible like tie-dye units in India um, and incredible fashion designers. And so for me, the Jasper brand becomes not just about spices, but a way to then hype people up across the culture. Um, and so if I can come up with a sweatsuit that is beautiful organic cotton that we know where it was grown, we know who made it, we know who tie-dyed yeah. it, we know who designed it. Um, and then you can, you know, rock a beautiful pink and orange sweatsuit while you're cooking your Sunday dinner. Um, that for me feels brand aligned and feels like feels like something our customers would want. Um, but I, I kind of had to spell that out for people on Instagram be like, this is why I made it is I wanted something that felt like diaspora to cook in. And yeah. people have loved it. It's been so cute. I love that. And also like making sure that when you're launching a product that's maybe like not so obviously connected to your kind of like core mission, making sure that you're tying everything in and then telling that story, I think is really interesting and really important. Yeah. And I also think that we're definitely one of those young businesses that are drawing from our peers constantly. We're launching a collaboration with East Fork Pottery on this Thursday. So April 28th, and it's been in the works for, you know, years. And uh, it's it's because we really admire them as a business. We admire the way they do business. And my entire team has been taking notes on this launch of how do they do it? What are they doing well? What are they not doing well? And, and that's every partnership really where all of us are constantly, we were a young team. We don't have a ton of work experience behind yeah. us, but we have a ton of passion and ideas. And so every time we partner with any other brand, we're taking notes on what did they do badly that we would like to improve on? What did they do really well that we'd like to build a skill set around? Um, okay, I want all of this knowledge. What <laughs> what have they done well? What have they done badly? Tell me. People oh, are going mean, to be done. on Instagram commenting. <laughs> I don't think they've done a thing badly. Um, East Fork has, you know, they, they as Connie, who's the CEO, she just sent me the product page. Um, so we're launching this chai kit that is, um, a black tea, a jaggery, which is like a unrefined sweetener, our chai masala, a strainer and a custom cup that they've done, like a hander, handleless chai cup. Um, that's mm. this beautiful, dusty pink, like it's a, almost like a dusty rose. And I, I sourced a special black tea and a special jaggery to our sourcing standards, especially for the collaboration. So really put a heart and soul in. Um Connie just sent me the product page. Our product page is super basic. It's like, here's what it is. Here's what's in it. Here's a link to buy. Their product page is like six different page, like slides. You can just like keep scrolling through. It immerses you deeper and deeper into the story. It talks about us. It talks about the photo shoot. It talks about their values. Like I, I just kept scrolling this page being like, how did she bring all of these storytelling elements that we, you know, talked about tangentially on random phone calls and turn it so beautifully into a product page. And so immediately me, my marketing manager, my product manager and e-com, like we're all on a call being like, okay, how can we replicate these kinds of product pages going forward and pull elements together in this way? What are the processes we need to put in place to do this? Are there specific apps and Shopify or anything that you think like help with those product pages to make them more beautiful? Have you found anything helpful? Uh, for product pages, we don't have very many apps. Honestly, we do work with a, a very expensive but wonderful developer on Retainer mm -hmm. who's constantly doing stuff like that pretty much every week. But in the apps department, I'm trying to think, 
we have a few fun apps, but I've gotten disconnected from them. My main thing for like smaller business owners is, is making that big jump from Squarespace to Shopify, because I know that we stayed on, on Squarespace a hair too long and it made that jump so much harder. Um, even just in terms of customer data, you know, when you, when you make that jump, you lose two years of customer data. Um, and a lot of our peers have, you know, or especially like baby companies that come to us for inspiration often say, oh, but it's so expensive. And like, then right now I can do it myself. I don't want a developer. And I, I constantly have to tell them like, it is the investment in your storefront. Like it is the first money you should put down. Yeah, I am a big Shopify fan. We just yeah. had a big event with Shopify. And I just think like, if you're building an e-com business, they're just the gold standard. You need to yeah. get on it. Exactly. Yeah. Very much. And you know what? Like, yes, you need a developer if you're like creating something that isn't out of the box, but like you can get, you can get started sure. with free apps and okay. YouTube tutorials and stuff. I want to talk about supply chain and finding ethical suppliers. I think that so many people are not so many people, but like a lot of the women I speak to are really interested in how do I make sure that my sourcing is ethical and that I'm doing this properly, especially when I'm sourcing globally. What are some of the things that you have learned and that you would recommend when people are looking to work with, especially like when you're engaging farmers and that kind of thing? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this, a lot of which unfortunately are quite cynical because we do yeah. things quite differently. Um, I've worked in sourcing, yeah, now about six years and I've seen every level of bullshit at every level of business. And, you know, especially my source of expertise is South Asia. That's what I know. I don't really know what it's like to source from China or Korea or elsewhere. But I know that in South Asia, a lot of our peers come in and say, oh, we're working with this vendor in India. What do you think of them? And I can take, you know, a quick peruse over their LinkedIn or their website and pretty quickly be like, yeah, this is bullshit. Or, okay, you know, I think that they're doing something right here. And unfortunately, from what I have found, you kind of have to go to the source yourself in India um, or in South Asia. Like, I don't find that going through traders and middlemen um, in South Asia works because it was a system built to be unjust and built in income inequality. And there's there's like layers of class, caste, um, religion that make it so that there's... Um, just this feeling of like the people manufacturing this don't deserve more and don't need more. Uh, you know, to give you an example, I've, I've worked in sourcing in other industries, not just spices. And I've acted as like the ethical sourcing consultant and gone to some of these middlemen um, and asked them, you know, Oh, why aren't you paying? I don't know. Like your, your uh, textile person, the person who's doing the weaving um, off your textiles, like, why wouldn't you pay them more? Or why not put like a tube light in the, in the room that they're weaving in? And I've gotten ridiculous answers that like, oh, their eyes are adjusted to this. If we gave them a light, it would hurt them. Who says that? Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that's like deeply held beliefs about like othering people and believing that they're somehow subhuman um, that's normalized or, you know, oh, if we pay them more, they'll just spend it on alcohol. Like, okay, but how do we address the root of the fact that there's, you know, five generations of alcohol that needs alcoholism that needs to be undone? Um, and yeah, what work can you, what, what's your duty as the person sourcing from them to undo that harm, given that you're, you're integrating into a system that has done harm historically? Um, so for us, my way has been to do it ourselves and to only grow when we could do it ourselves, you know, stand behind it 100%. 
And I don't think that's the only way because I think that way is obviously really slow. Um, and that way has meant that there are times when we're sold out of a spice that people rely on in their homes all mm. the time. You know, we've been sold out of cumin for nine months because we've been looking for, we couldn't scale with our farm partner. Like his, his quality control started to slip and we tried every which way we couldn't scale. And it took, it took us nine months to find a new partner. Could I have like gone to a third party and bought you know, human from roughly the same origin and continue to sell it. Yes, absolutely. And like, would that have made a lot of people, you know, generically happy? Yes. But it just didn't work for us and our values. So, and and, and from, from what I've heard, businesses that, you know, are working with Korea, with China, with Thailand, they find the same thing is that you ultimately have to have a team on the ground that has like a cultural knowledge and understanding and is values aligned with you. And that's really hard to tell. Like I've thought that we were partnering with, you know, a vendor that was deeply values aligned, like had a slick website, said all the right words to me. I was like, oh yes, yeah. fair wages and this and this and this. And then we've done like a random inspection or a spot check, um, which cost us money and like was kind of a hassle and made it seem like we were being, you know, extra. Um, but ultimately like showed us glaring holes in supply chains um, and inequity. Um, that made us terminate relationships. So it, it feels valuable to start building that rigor in early on. And so just to be, just like to be totally clear, you think it really needs to be like boots on the ground. Like if you can't inspect or like, you know, a representative from your company can't like actually inspect the facility where this stuff is happening, like you can't guarantee that it's ethical. I think so. Yeah. As yeah. things stand right now, yes, that's how I feel. Yeah. Um, just, so just, I've just seen so much, so much bullshit. Yeah. No, that's great to know. I think that's really good yeah. advice. Really interesting. Okay. And so there's not, can you like, are there any, um, you mentioned like middlemen and that kind of thing. You don't think that there's any, like anyone that people can work with. There's no like recommendations. It's really like, get there yourself, go have a look and then, and then see what you think. I mean, you know, we've totally used middlemen. Like we've used mm. incredible partners to like, you see those, uh, we have these beautiful brass masala dabbas that are, yeah. um, they're spun and, you know, seven spices fit inside them. Um, and we work with, we outsource to a production company called Tipoy, um, who are wonderfully values aligned and just, they've been amazing partners to us. Um, but I think I got spoiled because I met them early on. And then we started talking to other potential partners because they couldn't, you know, scale for all of the products we were hoping to create. And mm -hmm. I wanted to like speed through launching a pepper mill and all these other like exciting things in time for the holidays. And we went down those paths really aggressively. And sure enough, like right before launch or right before we were about to commit money, um, it went really badly. And we, and we realized that, oh, they are, they're, lying about what they're paying their vendors they are lying about what you know what their actual equity standards are and and a lot of that comes from me and my team speaking a lot of different indian languages and being able to go to these factories and, and actually talk to the workers and say give me the real story like recently i went yeah. to one of our manufacturers and because i'm muslim and they're the the workers were muslim um they they don't often see like young muslim women and get to interact with muslim women and so there was like this immediate camaraderie of like it's almost ramzan or ramadan here um you know how are you guys mm -hmm. doing chat with me and they were just thrilled that their buyer was a muslim woman and so i got chatting with them and you know i really was able to ask deep questions about workplace ethics and values and they were able to be really straight with me and give me kind of an analysis of, okay, this is what 
our boss may have said to you that's true and like that we that which is why we work here and this is what he's saying that's like kind of bullshit or like kind of a half truth that like sounds nice in marketing copy but actually is the industry standard or actually like doesn't make a difference at all um you know things like oh they they give us uh they give us three meals a day it's like would they give us no meals a day like we we live here and we work here um the expectation is that they should feed us like that shouldn't be an extra Um, and realizing that like all manufacturing units have to provide food. So like, that's not a benefit. That's the bare minimum. Um, and then is it food that they can eat in the, you know, they're, they, they eat halal. Is it meat that they, you know, are in line with their values because they're Muslim and the owner is not, um, like little things like that, that then Mm. allowed me and my sourcing manager to, to go back and come up with, okay, so here's our audit. Here's what's really good about this vendor that we're really happy with. And here's what, in order to grow with them, we're going to need them to change and approve, approve upon. And how are we going to do it in a way that we don't rat out the workers or put them in harm's way in any way? That's really intense work to be doing at a supply chain level. Um, but if you're claiming to like build a better system and provide fair wages, et cetera, like, you just have to go deeper than just you saying, oh, it. yes, I'm just throwing dollars at the problem. Most yeah. of the time, the dollar is just going to the trader. Huh. Okay. That's really interesting. I think that's re- that's really important and good advice. A lot of people, when you're starting an internet business, you're like, oh, I can find these suppliers and they say that they tick these boxes and maybe the platform that I'm using to to find them says that they tick the, but maybe what have they actually done in the way of due diligence? So yeah. really interesting. I wanted to kind of switch and talk a little bit about your resource recommendations. And that can be like books that you love, podcasts, maybe someone you follow on TikTok. I don't care where this source is coming from, but something that's helped you grow this incredible business and become a better leader yourself as well. I have two big ones. So first, um, you know, my old advice in like a different world and time used to be that, look, I've given that advice a little too many times to the point where, you know, randoms are clogging my inbox constantly with I bet. so well-intentioned. <laughs> and I have to be like, I do not have the bandwidth to mentor a single one of you because I can't yes. can keep myself alive. But then you come on a podcast and so just send them to the exactly. podcast link, you know, exactly. <laughs> here's and all I do of that. my advice. <laughs> and we do that all the time. So that was going to be my advice is, you know, I recently, I've been dying to especially in the early years, I I wanted to understand how does a a food business scale and podcasts like Second Life, like how I built this, this podcast Mm -hmm. like really helped Mm -hmm. me understand that, especially understanding people's like breaking points and how they build back from that. That's always good because you never know what breaks somebody and how they grow back from it. That's been very powerful for me. Um, So podcast is one because I, I think that in between 2016 to now, our lives have only become more intense where actually reaching out to a really busy CEO is, is the easiest way to like make sure she wants nothing to do with you um, <laughs> because we're so tired and so stretched thin, especially yeah. post pandemic or mid pandemic. That's one. And I think yeah. two for me, the most important thing has been finding an amazing business coach um, who you are able to hear difficult things from and get criticism from not somebody who's just like go you you're doing so good um or you know who like I have what my coach and I call a relationship of creative tension where we come from very different worlds he is an older straight white man who you know has privilege resources a lot of things I am a young queer immigrant um and we're generations apart and we we often disagree. We come together, you know, in a 
in like a head buddy way. And, Mm -hmm. but I am always open to what he's offering me because I know that he's offering it to me, you know, with only my growth and best interests in heart, like nothing beyond that. There's nothing he stands to gain from the relationship beyond my growth. Um, And we've had to be really careful with that. If like, oh no, you can't invest in diaspora. You can't do anything. I want this relationship to be pure and about me and my growth as a leader. And it's very confidential. So I can bring all of my work drama and work problems to it. Um, And I've paid for it. You know, I was paying my coach before and more than I was paying myself. Um, I started working with him March, 2020. I started paying myself fall 2020. Um, And he's just been instrumental to my growth. And it's not just, I think it's not just him. It's, it's cultivating that relationship and committing to it. So I think if there are founders feeling lost, find a good coach. Can you don't have to say his name, but feel free to shout him out if you, if you want to, but I'm really interested in actually like what, what a coach costs, like what, what is the cost of a business coach? Yeah. Um, you know, I've gotten all kinds of quotes, but the norm tends to be about $500 a session. Like that's pretty normal in the executive coach world. I think some people might do sighting scale and go up and down from there. I mean, you know, depending on the level of like incredible hotshot who might have like, Mm -hmm built a business to several hundred million dollars in your exact industry and who's now coaching and consulting on the side, maybe that like information is a little bit more expensive to access. Um, But especially somebody who's doing it for the love of like building the next generation of leaders, it can, it can go down from there. So I think we, we started right off the bat at 500 a session, but I had to like just delete that number from my brain Mm -hmm. and be like, you will just go to these sessions with your full heart and your full brain and commit to the process and the money doesn't matter. And at this point, you know, two and a half years of working together later um, or two years of working together later, it feels priceless. Like I literally can't yeah. put a tag on the kind of growth I have had and the business has had through that relationship. Interesting. And what kind of what kind of things make a good coach? I feel like TikTok is full of business coaches that have never done anything except for coach other coaches. And like, how do you find actually a good coach who can move your business forward and give you good advice? Yeah. I've been seeing so much of this too, TikTok and Instagram with all of these, like, it feels like a multi-level marketing plan for coaching where I'm just like, but you never did anything with your life. I'm so confused. 100%. Like what have you built? (laughs) Yeah. And so I think that's where like making sure your coach is or was an operator is number one. And I had the same, um, the same like rule for my investors too, is that I only wanted operators to invest in me. I didn't want money from like random people who just sat on money and like didn't know what it takes to build a brand um, and scale a brand. Um, so those are my two criteria for investing and coaching is that they've done shit. Um, but beyond that, I think somebody who has exactly the skill set and like the knowledge that you don't, I'm a creative, you know, total like passion driven, classic founder, very little operating experience. I mean, at this point, decent operating experience, but you know, I, I don't have like COO qualities. I don't think in terms of like MBA classes, Um, Mm -hmm. none of that is me. Um, and I don't say that to put those skills down. I think those skills are so powerful in everything that I don't have. And so having a coach who has that skill set can teach you how to hire for that skill set, can teach you, you know, how to raise around the the skill sets you don't have. Um, I think we honed in on what my strengths and weaknesses were and what my areas of growth were going to be early on. 
an, a big area of growth that we honed in on in 2020 that we don't focus on anymore um, was sitting with complexity. Like often he would notice that I would come to a session and just like ramble about this one big problem and be like, the world is falling down, <laughs> um, you know, and it's, it's obsessive and it's taking over my whole brain. Part of that is obviously hiring a team who handles that more and more for you. Um, but part of it is the world is crashing, but also I'm okay. And I'm still going to make dinner tonight. And like, yeah. you know, our supply chain crashing has nothing to do with my ability to feed myself today or, you know, yeah. my ability to write a nice thank you email to somebody like, sitting with chaos and complexity and compartmentalizing it to the best of your abilities. And I think that's something that I'm now passing on to my managers and saying, I understand that this is really scary for you right now, but also your worth is not determined by it. I don't judge you based on it. Like it is a situation that we're going to handle and then we're going to move on. Mm. As you're, you mentioned your managers just then, as you're hiring senior level staff, how are you thinking about that? Are you rewarding them through equity in the business? Do you want people to be owners in the business? Are you like, you know, doing a more classic like salary package? Like how are you thinking about getting that talent? Yeah, we're totally in flux with that because we just raised and we've been so like bootstrapped and cash strapped for so long. So literally this fall is when we convert from being like tiny single member LLC to a corporation. Um, once we become a corporation, then we can, you know, issue equity to all of our full-time team. Um, and I've, I want to build this with my team. Yeah. You know, they're, they're so yeah. special. Um, I have, I, I founded this for like sex self-actualization and social impact, not to hoard stock options. Um, and I'm very clear on that. So that I'm very happy to just divvy up um, widely. Um, in terms of hiring talent, I think I'm committed to hiring really diverse talent who bring, you know, their culture and their stories and their experience in ways that are not traditionally valued um, and, and really have been underserved in the hiring process. That feels important and an area that I can lead in and be of strength to and in finding that talent. Um, but I think, you know, the opposite side of that is I also now have gone from hiring kind of young talent who's or my peers and who were all like young people cool people doing things to now needing senior level executives who have the experience to take a company from you know the mid millions to the tens to hundreds of millions um and that's a big switch and that's the switch that i think we're in the middle of making right now Oh, exciting. Well, I can't wait to hear what happens on the other side of that switch. It's such an interesting point for a business. Yeah, it's a good inflection awesome. point to be at. Sana, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was an incredible conversation. So much good advice there. I think that people will find it um, really, really helpful. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> 